Please have Psalm 51 open in front of you. And in particular, we're looking at verses 16 and 17. Now, friends, this Psalm of David is full of the gospel. It's a Psalm of repentance and crying out to the Lord following David's own terrible fall into adultery and all the awful consequences of that. But throughout, we are brought to see the wonder of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only Savior. And so, for example, in verse 9, you have that phrase, blot out all my iniquities. You see, David, under the conviction of sin, was brought to see his true state before God, the reality of his condition. And his only hope was the pardon and the deliverance that God himself could give. And, you know, it tells us so clearly, the Bible is so clear, that the biggest problem that every one of us faces is sin and its consequences. The Bible tells us that sin ruins, that it distorts our thoughts and our desires and our choices and our actions and our words. But the Bible does more than that. It shows us that our sin puts us at war with God. It puts enmity between us. It shows us how sin causes us to want to be our own king, to set up our own kingdom, as it were, our own standard, to be done with God, to be rid of him. And Scripture reveals what happens when we set up our own little kingdoms rather than living for the kingdom of God. And we face ruin and we face everlasting ruin. And the Bible faces us with this truth. And when the Spirit of God shows it to us and applies it to us, we realize not only is it true, but there's nothing in ourselves that we can do to solve that problem. And David knew that. His confession proves that he has been shown this reality and he looks then to the only place of help. He knows that although we cannot solve his greatest problem, there is a place where that solution can be found. You see, the only hope for sinners is that the one who is in charge of the universe is a God of forgiveness. And the bottom line is this, if God is unwilling to forgive or to make a way in which we can be forgiven, we are doomed forever. But that is the wonder that not only is he willing to forgive, but he has done all necessary in order to forgive us. The sovereign God demonstrates his willingness to forgive. And the one who controls all things, the, the forces of nature who directs human history, brought it to the point where the final priest, the sacrificial lamb, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, came to this earth and lived that perfect life and gave himself on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of his people. And God is in his incredible grace and love and mercy has provided the only way in which our deepest problem, our sin and rebellion against him will be dealt with, will find its solution. And he does it in a way that doesn't compromise his holy character. All is set in place and David realizes that the help that he so much needs is outside of himself. And it is in the promised Savior, the Deliverer. And when God works in our hearts, we're no longer in that place where we try and deny you know, sin or divide that we are as we are. Or, you know, all those things, we, we don't have to play all those self-excusing games with ourselves anymore. We don't have to give ourselves to try and make things better, to do our best, to solve the problem. We don't have to try and perform our way in thinking to try and get God's favor. It's impossible. 
Rather, we come again and again to Christ, flawed, broken, sinful, unclean, and looking to Jesus. You see, there is no sin too great. There is no person that is beyond hope. God has made the way, the redeeming work of his Son on the cross of Calvary, by which our iniquities can be blotted out can be forgiven, can be dealt with forever. And it's only on that basis that we can be reconciled to God. And it's only after that conviction and reconciliation that we can be true worshippers of God. That issue needs to be dealt with first. And you see, that is what David brings us to see. He brings us to see the gospel throughout this psalm. It is full of Christ and the consequences of one who knows Christ. Now, verses 16 and 17, I want you to see that there are two types of sacrifice. One is the kind of sacrifice that God doesn't require. The other is the sacrifice that God does require. Now, you might think, well, the idea of sacrifice is that so far off from us, but actually it reveals a lot to us about the nature of a true relationship with God and true worship. And he says, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Just a a point of clarification. There is a, a very popular teaching that is taking place at the moment. And some have misunderstood words like this and similar ones in the Old Testament. And their whole argument is that God does not require sacrifice because God didn't institute the sacrificial system that you find throughout Scripture. They say that that was man-made and God didn't really want it. But friend, that view is deeply flawed and it's unbiblical. And it must always be set aside. And worse than that, it undermines the entire gospel, including the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in the Old Testament, God did set in place the sacrificial system where sacrifices of bulls and goats and sheep, etc., were to be offered in the tabernacle or the temple. But the entire system was designed to point to the greater sacrifice, to the Lord Jesus Christ, the true deliverance from sin that he would bring as the sacrifice of God. All of it is pointing to that, all the, the types and the shadows and the pictures, all pointing to the Savior. So then left with the question, well, what is David saying? Well, simply that what is most important in worship is not externals, but the condition of our hearts. Now, there are biblical requirements for outward forms of worship. That is true. The Bible makes it clear, those things which please God. But the heart is key. And David isn't trying to abolish the the sacrificial system. You can see that in verse 19. He acknowledges that there's a place for these outward sacrifices under the old covenant. But God, first of all, requires the worship of the heart. And that is still the same in the New Testament. We're no longer under the, the old system. We are brought in Christ, the new covenant, but we still come into his presence to worship him, to praise him, to listen to his word, to delight in him, all those things. And our hearts must be engaged. The importance of heart worship. You know, that is the most important aspect of our worship today. It is that when we worship God, we should bring our minds and our hearts to him. 
that we should bring our innermost affection and desires before him, that we should be engaged in this worship. That was the mistake that many Israelites made. They came to the tabernacle, they came to the temple, they brought their offering, and off they went home again. And they thought that just by going through the motions, well, that would be enough, and God would be satisfied with that. But it wasn't true then, it's not true now. There's no point in just going through the motions. You know, going through the motions and and running home again, it's only as we come in Christ and, and bring our hearts in accordance with his word will our worship be acceptable. If our minds and hearts are far from the worship of God, it's of no value. And this passage, it makes it so clear that to be true worshipers, each of us needs this this broken and contrite heart. The question is, do I, do we know what it is to have a heart like that? Have our hearts been broken in these terms as David speaks of? The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. You say, well, what does it mean? What is meant by a broken and a contrite heart? Well, let me tell you some things that it is not. It is not talking about having a bad conscience. You know, we can have that, can't we? There are times when we can feel guilty. I know that. I'm sure that you do as well. It's not good to have a guilty conscience. Times when maybe we've spoken hastily and wished that we'd not said the things that we'd said. Or when we lose our temper... We instantly regret it. We feel our sin. And when we have that, there's only one thing to do, and that's to go to God, confess your sin, cry out for mercy, and ask him to forgive you, to make it right, to cleanse you by the blood of Christ. But that's not what David is speaking of here. It's also not talking about being hurt. You know, we know what it is to be hurt, don't we? Someone says something unkind, and it hurts and wounds, and we feel it. Maybe someone's not dealt with us well and our our feelings have been hurt. And when people unkindly deal with us and hurt us like that, there's only one thing to do. And in that case, it is to pray that God will bless them and to pray that God will forgive them and pray that God would do them good. You know, don't hold a grudge. It's awfully hard to forgive those that hurt us. But by God's grace, Jesus says that his people are to forgive as we ourselves have been forgiven. But that's not what it's speaking of here with a broken and a contrite heart. Well, what does it mean then? Well, a broken and a contrite heart is the heart of someone who knows that God requires us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Someone who understands something of the character of God as revealed in his word. Maybe some of you remember the time when God passed by Moses. Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. A broken heart belongs to someone who has been faced and given to know something of God's true and glorious character. They've had a real encounter with the living God. Someone who knows the words of Jesus and the meaning of them. True worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. 
Or you think of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And one cried to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know, that's a a real experience and all true believers have have had that type of experience more or less. They They have encountered the reality of God and the greatness of God. And the way to grow in grace and in holiness is to see more of the character of God, to have more of this knowledge of God, more of this reverence and grace and of this love towards God, more of understanding God and that desire to please Him. And those who have this broken heart who are people who understand who God is and understand that what God is looking at in all worship that is worthy of that name, worship, whether it's in secret or in the family or in the congregation or whatever, is worship in which our hearts are deeply engaged because we are aware of the reality of who God is. That's the first thing. Also, it's the heart of someone who sees why God appointed these sacrifices in the Old Testament. The fact that they point to Jesus, the ultimate Lamb of God. And friends, a broken and a contrite heart is struck always with the work of Jesus on the cross. You know, we might ask, you know, if God wasn't concerned about the blood of bulls and goats, but was more concerned by the heart, why did he insist on it? Why did God require the shedding of blood in these sacrifices if that wasn't actually the main thing in worship? Well, as I've said, they're all pointing to the coming of Messiah, God's provision. And in the Old Testament, they had the promise that one day he would come, but they lived in an age when it wasn't as clear as it is clear to us today. And the sacrifices were a picture to them, a a type, a prophecy of what Jesus Christ our Lord would do. And his being the only blood that cleanses from sin. As it says in Hebrews, all the, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away one sin. But God instituted that worship in the Old Testament so that the conscience of the worshiper should have something to point them to Messiah, to the Lamb of God. To the fact that God's deliverer will come to deal with sin through the shedding of his blood on the cross. You only have to read Isaiah 53, and it's full of Christ. The blood of sacrifice in the Old Testament was necessary only as it pointed to Christ, to the blood of Christ, the cross of Christ. And so the broken and contrite heart knows that. It's taken up with Jesus. And it's the heart of someone who is sorry to have offended God. That's the third thing. You know, friend, that's the kind of heart that you need if you ever desire to get to heaven. If you want God to listen to your prayers or to know his blessing, then you must have this broken heart confessing that you're a sinner, that you've done wrong, that you've broken the laws of God, that you've not lived to the glory of God, and nor have I. And you know, all true worship has this element with it. Lord, I deserve condemnation. I deserve to go to hell. It's of your mercy that I live another moment. I don't deserve anything from you, Lord. Lord, it's your kindness which has provided a ransom for my soul. 
a heart that is tender to the fact that we owe everything to our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And everybody that has this broken heart is a, a true Christian because you cannot have it unless God himself gives it to you. It's a mark of grace. We're not born with it. We can't learn it. We can't earn it. We are given it by the grace of God. The Holy Spirit must give us this spirit of contrition. And so let me ask you right now this morning, do you have this broken heart? Are you truly sorry for the sin that you have done in your rebellion against God? Does it grieve you when you offend God? When your conscience is pricked, many times in a day, I have the same problem. Oh, I wish I'd not done that or thought that or said that. We're such foolish fallen people. And all our hope is that God is merciful to those who confess their sins and forsake them. That is what is meant by the broken heart. We don't come full of self to worship God. We're emptied, laid aside, taken up with the reality of God the reality of Christ, the work on the cross, and the reality that we are sinners in need of his mercy. And then we ask the question, well, if those things are in place, why is a broken heart acceptable to God? Why does it please God? Why is God concerned about the, the broken and contrite heart, the broken heart, contrite spirit? Why does he delight to see this in the worshiper? Because God loves those who have this contrite spirit those who are truly repentant, those who hate sin, those who are looking to him. Why? Because it glorifies him and it honors him and it accords with his holiness. You know, the believer's life is one of continual repentance, short accounts with God, confessing our sin, admitting to God our shortcomings, looking ever to Jesus. Let me ask you as I ask myself, do I ever weep in secret prayer? when I consider the state of my heart? Have you known those times when tears have flowed as you have dwelt on the reality of Jesus and his love and his work on the cross? Do you know there is a rarity today? But our forefathers who really were so far from us spiritually, so far on would reinforce this great truth that the believers who stand apart are the most broken Christians. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? When you think nothing else is really better after it's been broken. You break a window, it's not great. If your car breaks down, that's certainly not good. And uh, then you go in the whole realm of technology, etc. Not the better for being broken. What's the exception? The best hearts are broken hearts. For others to know that, that outpouring of the Spirit of grace and supplication, and that's what should be happening in churches now everywhere, broken hearts before a holy God. But it's not, because worship is full of man and full of self and full of making oneself feel better. It's not full of God. And so the reality is this, that, that people go on, but we need to take seriously what it means that we are sinners in the sight of God. You see, God is honored when a contrite heart says to him, Lord, I am wrong, but you are right. Do you know, the worst that could ever happen to us would never be too great to punish our sins. That's how the Christian thinks. In doing so, he justifies God's. Psalm 51, 4, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. You know, think of David. 
David had sinned against God. He'd known the chastening of God. The consequences of his sin brought terrible ruin on his house and trouble in his family. Some of you know the accounts. One son killed another. Terrible things. One son rose up against him and forced him into exile. What was David's response? He didn't complain and say, oh, this is so unfair. How could this ever happen to me? Why would God allow this? Instead, he said, Psalm 119, Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. In other words, I, I deserve these things, Lord. God loves the contrite heart because it's the proper attitude that we ought to have. It is the, the disposition of mind and soul which is appropriate for those who have offended God and yet cast themselves upon his mercy. That is acceptable to God. You know, just think. Think about the reality of how we are sinners. How is it that that is the case? What made us a sinner first? We are all in the womb sinners. You look at verse 5. That's what that verse means. The sin and rebellion of Adam is ours by nature. The first sin of the first Adam is given to all his children. That's all of us. And before we've opened our mouth to say a word or stirred a hand to do any harm to anyone, we are sinners because of the imputation of Adam's sin, sinners by nature. We're not born innocent. And it doesn't take long, friends, when listening to the headlines on the news to see that the heart of people is, is rotten. It's depraved. You know, you look at the society that we're living in. You look at what's happening in the world. You know, at times we're just taken aback by the depravity of what we see. And, you know, we are all capable of, of terrible sin because we're all sinners. And, and when we're given a glimpse into our hearts, we can fear the darkness that is there. And at times, maybe we feel ourselves tempted even to the very worst of sins because we know that our hearts are wicked. Even the Christian has to watch and pray against this. But if we are given to see our hearts as they are and to cry out to the Lord, there's hope. Because that conviction of sin, that awareness of fallenness, our bankruptcy, our inability to do anything to make us right with God is a work of the Holy Spirit. It glorifies God because it acknowledges before Him we've got no hope in ourselves. Friends, if you came this morning and my message was that the answer lies within you. Oh, that'd be desperate. We got no hope in ourselves, no hope of deliverance, no hope of heaven through our own goodness or efforts. You know, in the Old Testament, one of the sacrifices involved the offerer coming to the altar with a lamb as a sacrifice. And shortly before the lamb was sacrificed upon the altar, the worshiper would put his hands on the head of the lamb and he leaned hard on top of the lamb and then it would be slain. Why? Because it taught the lesson of imputation. The worshiper was commanded to do this so that he would understand the sin of the worshiper was imputed to the sacrifice and the sacrifice was killed as the worshiper's substitute. It all pointed to Jesus. And that's what we do when we come to be Christians by the grace of God. We have laid our hands upon the head of the Lamb of God, as it were, who takes away our sin and His blood is our only hope. You know, we know that we, we can't appear before God with any righteousness of our own or any goodness of our own. It's unthinkable. But the contrite heart confesses that we can do no good of ourselves. We need His grace. 
and we, when we've known that and tasted and seen that the Lord is good, oh, then we want to worship him and delight in him. Let me ask you a question. Why is there so little power in the gospel these days, if I can put it like that? Why does it seem to have such little impact in this day and age in which we live? One of the reasons is that there are not enough broken hearts. There would be more blessing if we were each in that condition. How we need to plead with God for grace to break our hearts. Then we would see a difference. We're so hard against the things of God. There's so little blessing in the times in which we live, and much of it is related to small and deficient views of sin, small views of repentance, small views of God, wrong views of Jesus and his work on the cross. You know, friends, we look at the state of the church today. Oh, it brings us to despair. Some of the things that people who are well-known and well-respected are saying about the Lord Jesus brings us to weep, such is the error. And never mind when you, you get out into the, the wider sort of sphere of churches and organized religion and all the rest and the things that, that men in clergy and all the rest say about the Lord Jesus, it is utterly shameful and blasphemous. Friends, we need to keep coming back to the truth of God. You know, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he would rejoice when he was shown the truth that we are justified by faith alone. He'd been under deep conviction of sin. He, he kept confessing his sin, but he just couldn't get rid of his sin. But then God intervened and showed him there's only one way for sin to be dealt with, to get rid of sin, and that is to believe in the free justification of God, to lay your hand upon the head of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, to believe in his shed blood, which cleanses from all sin, to believe in the Savior, that he died for me. Do you know, it is a wonderful, wonderful thing to be brought to believe that, that this Jesus can forgive and deal with our sin, past, present, future. And as we come to him and all that is dealt with and laid upon him and we receive forgiveness and righteousness and life and peace and deliverance and joy, it is so glorious. We deserve nothing and we are given everything. We are rescued and we are delivered and ransomed and we are robed in his righteousness, and we are accepted with God. We have a Father in heaven, a wonderful hope. My sin is nailed to the cross, all of it dealt with. And we're dressed in beauty, not our own. And in Christ there is now no condemnation. Friend, we owe everything to Christ. Everything. And this broken heart is the heart of somebody who recognizes it. The true worshiper comes with hearts full like that, who rejoices in it. And so when God sees the worshiper, he asks, as it were, does this man or woman love me? Is their heart a broken heart and a contrite heart? Is their life? And then as we finish, the question then is, how do we get this broken heart? Well, we need to remember the holiness of God. We need to remember how holy God is. You know, we're living in an age when the holiness of God is lost in the church, not just in the world. You know, the world doesn't want God, doesn't believe in God anyway, but even in the church, people act and speak and live as though God is not holy. 
And he is. You know, if we want real blessing, if we want the presence of God, we must begin by recognizing the holiness of God, that he demands obedience, that he demands that we reverence him, that he demands that we worship him with all our being. Our whole soul must be given to him, otherwise it's worthless. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart. A broken and a contrite heart is what God is listening to. He's not looking at all the externals first and foremost. He's looking at your heart. And so I ask you this morning, what do you think of the great God? What do you really think of him? You know, the worship most pleasing to God is not offered by the decorated clergy in their great cathedrals or the mega churches with their packed stadiums and their slick sets. It is offered by people who really know him and love him, who bring their worship pleading only Jesus Christ, even in a a handful of people like us, if our hearts are right. Remember the holiness of God. And then in the light of that, we need to remember our sinfulness, examine ourselves, keep short accounts with God, bring it to him. You know, sometimes our thoughts can drift and we pursue a line of thought which is unhelpful and we've got to challenge ourselves, bring ourselves back. We cry, oh God, forgive me, please help me. I've wandered again. Please bring me back. Every thought captive under Christ. And the problem is that often people wander and they wander and they wander and they don't keep those short accounts and before they know it, they are so far away. It becomes even harder to come back. If we have no sense of sin, we'll never have a contrite heart. That's essential. And then we need to remember the sufferings of the Lord Jesus to bring into view the Calvary and the reality of Calvary. The man crucified, his hands extended, a crown of thorns upon his brow, the scars of misery upon him, the agony and anguish he suffers, the perfect, glorious Son of God who endured all that hell, all that wrath upon him in our place. You know, if you're a believer, how we should hate sin knowing that the blood of the Savior is upon it. We cannot love sin when we realize that sin put our Lord to death. The cross shows us the darkness of sin and how at Calvary God was laying our sin upon his Son. And he pays the price for us, our substitute. He takes the punishment we deserve. He surrenders himself that we might be forgiven. And our sins, though they are many, his mercy is more. It's a wonderful truth. And that's the gospel who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. The Lord is satisfied. God's wrath is poured upon him and found in him, washed in his blood. We are free and we are reconciled. John Newton was a slave trader and yet by God's grace, he was wonderfully converted and became a minister of the gospel those many, many, many years ago. But you know, at the end of his life, his memory had completely gone, completely failed. And, you know, as he was there in the latter part of his life, he could only say this. He said, I can't remember anything except two things. I remember that I am a great sinner. And the other thing I remember is that Christ is a great Savior. If those two things are all you can remember, you're sure to have the broken heart 
and you're sure to be right with God. God tells us that's what he's looking for. And oh, what a blessing. What a blessing if your soul can feel this grace of God within it. It brings you to confess your sin and love Jesus Christ. Are you a true worshiper this morning? Do you possess a heart like this? May it be that by God's grace you do. And may it be that our worship really is pleasing to him. Amen.